We're going to tune in right now. We're going to hear from the man himself. This is part one of my interview with Boots. Uh, and co-interviewing with me is Andrew Tate of the International Socialists. Buckle up. Enjoy. Boots, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the airwaves on Radio 1. Uh, and um, listen, man, people who know your music, who know a lot about you, will know that you're uh, a guy who, you know, meshes politics, activism, and music perhaps like no one since Gil Scott Heron, really. Um, and I just wonder if there's something in, you know, your devotion to music that is, it, whether it's something as a hip-hop MC, is there something in hip-hop that's universal to the struggle, or is this music more generally? How does that inform, you know, what you do? Well, I think, well, music is communication, and we're all under struggling under this system, so um, music that communicates, you know, the real human condition is is going to be music that that connects with people, you know, whether it, it, and um, it doesn't just happen in hip hop; it happens in all forms of music and always has. And so, basically, what I write about, you know, they they a lot of times they try to say, well, you do political music, but the truth is, all music is political. Um, everything is political, and and it's just the the the, the call. The coups music political because simply because it's the the political viewpoint is that we need to get rid of this system. There's other political music that we hear most of the time that reinforces the idea that everything is that the system is okay or that mm. we can't win against the system. Or they engineer a pop star wannabe pop star contests to make proof positive that maybe you too will be the next sensation on American Idol and all the rest of it. And just to, just to be specific, when you talk about the system, uh, we're talking about capitalism and, 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 and different forms of exploitation that you know, flow from that, whether you know, uh, minority, religious, gender, uh, race, and all the rest of it. Well, yeah, when I, when, when I talk about capitalism, I, the, the primary contradiction in capitalism is economic exploitation and um, which is a place that at least in the US that radicals have left alone you know we've left that to liberal progressives at best mm -hmm. usually I don't know about it in, in New Zealand same but, thing same thing yeah but the the point is though if we if we want any leverage at all we need to be organizing around those is issues of exploitation. We need to be able to withhold labor in order to uh, to do anything. Otherwise, all of our actions pretty much amount to spectacle and and uh, complaint while we're at ho hoping that someone does something for us. But with the the tool of being organized to withhold labor, then you can force the hand. Uh, of something and, and it's some uh, of of the ruling class and you can uh, even if it's just to make even if reform is your own is is something that you want to do you still you you need that even to make reform and if revolution is your goal as it is with mine you need those you need victories in those reform struggles in order to build a revolutionary movement and uh and we're only going to get victories if we have a way to win. 
and that's that's why we got it. Radicals have to uh, organize around labor issues. You, you go in 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 neighborhood in in the U.S. You go in poor neighborhoods, and people aren't necessarily just talking about. Uh, we, we, you know, you can use all sorts of phrases. You could talk about uh, uh, about representation in the media and things like that. But what people are really worried about is paying their rent. Mm. And uh, and and radicals love to stay away from that question, and I believe it's because uh, we don't have faith that that the people are ready to organize around those things. And I, and I think we 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 uh, many of us have has have gotten that idea uh, simply because of. Uh, mistakes of the past in, in, in radical movements. But Boots, um, like I saw a graph of strike statistics for the United States in the last, what, 30 years, and it basically, you know, it's hit a real low point. And the same thing in New Zealand, like, you know, uh, there's a spike in the late 70s, and then last 30 years it's been, um, you know, that, that ability of workers to withhold their labour like it's not really in the consciousness of people in the states or in New Zealand very much anymore, eh? Well, and that's the fault of radicals, right? Because uh, radicals were left and were chased out of uh, those uh, of labor struggles in in mass in the fifties. Um, since then, you've had you've had uh, progressive liberals who have who have basically followed the letter of the law. And here we have something called the Taft-Hartley law, which says that there can be no sympathy strikes. So, yeah. and, and which means that your strike can't win. Yeah. And people have it withheld from striking because they, because they don't think there should be one. They've withheld from it because the unions that exist now aren't going to lead them to victory. Mm, in, yeah. in the United States, only seven percent of uh, the of people are in a union in the first place. Yeah, and and so that means that there's ninety three percent of everyone else that could be organized by radicals. Yeah, right on. But that work is a different kind of work. That means you have to organize where you work. You can't just organize. You can't just organize a rally on Saturday downtown. Uh, about some macroeconomic issue, or some, you know, yeah. uh, you you have to you have to do it's it's harder and more tedious work that has to be done, but it's work that builds a base um, for radicals, and, and and you know those movements are going to have to be militant. They're going to have to be ones in which the leaders of those movements will probably get jailed or whatever. But I think those are the things that gain confidence from from the working class right now the perception and w which is largely true is that uh many of the union leaders here of the big unions are working um and negotiating a lot uh, in, in in favor of the bosses yeah and uh and so people have lost their faith in that i don't think they've lost their faith in the idea one reason that occupy oakland actually uh, did good to to uh, a lot of people's surprise, at least for the time that it was doing well, 
was because it did talk about the idea of stopping profits as a tactic. And a lot of people of color specifically were like, okay, now there's something that's winning. We're not just talking about marches. We're not just talking about uh, demonst informational demonstrations. We're talking about something that has a material consequence that has to be dealt with. Yeah, right on. Hey, and and I just jumping on the back of of Occupy Oakland has certainly had uh, a flavor of its own. I guess representative of some of the struggles in in the Bay Area that have gone before it. Um, but to what extent? I mean, if we and we don't want to paint with broad brushes, but to what extent can we identify and occupy some kind of anarchistic tendencies that you know, uh, in a sense, they were very democratic, but and it's uh, you know not wanting to in any way appear hierarchical or any of these things and there's a certain kind of libertarian or anarchistic tendency that's kind of deteriorated the the kind of the thrust of of the general movement and it seems like in american politics right now there's there's a real kind of ascendant libertarianism uh in which kind of any impinging on the individual is somehow some stalinist thing or whatever so I guess, what are your general thoughts about Occupy, where it's gone, and where radical politics is in its wake? Well, well, what Occupy proved was kind of what I had been making comments about in interviews for years, mm -hmm. uh, just in my experiences, that a lot of times radicals think that we're the only ones who would agree with this stuff, that folks that have identified themselves as radicals. And in the U.S., like whole sections, geogra whole geographical sections of the United States are written off as being too far gone or being right wing. And in reality, yep. uh, these folks are, are, are ready for something that might work. And this is why there was an Occupy encampment, a substantial one mm -hmm. in like... 95% of the towns in the United States and you know there was a, 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 a there was a an encampment of some sort in every town in the United States right and um, places like Fox News would do they, they did a they did a, a poll at one point of their viewers which are seen as the most right-wing in the United States which asked if the if the Occupy's uh, theme of 99%, um, if that spoke to them. And Fox News, of course, expected all of their viewers to say that it didn't. Yep. And 85% um, said it did. Wow. Mm. <laughs> but I guess, it comes, I guess it comes down to, do you blame the structural inequalities in the economy or do you blame the Jews or the black socialist Obama or like some of these kind of mythic fear figures that can be whipped up? Uh, well, let me say this. Some yeah. of these terms, I, I think that that people, you know, people that don't consider themselves left or right and as well as folks on the left, we get caught up in semantics and don't really listen to what folks are saying. So, for instance, one time I was on the I was, I was on the plane. And these two um, middle-aged uh, uh, white women uh, who had, for other reasons, I, I could identify that they were Republican. 
they were saying they were saying you know I, this I, I I really don't agree with this Obama socialist metal Medicare you know it's you know it's not right it's socialist and this and that and they said what we really need to do is make all of those banks that we just bailed out pay for our medical care <laughs> yeah. now so you know they're caught up on on the catchphrase and we might someone on the left might be like oh okay they're against socialism but these same ideas are ones that folks have been you know that people agree with yep. you know folks are agreeing with each other it's just certain political players are able to um get people onto certain uh, uh get get some some of the population on a certain sides i mean uh in the in the 20s and 30s and even in the four as part of the 40s mm. um places like montana utah um alabama Kansas. colorado those had, were claimed by j edgar hoover to be hotbeds of communist activity yep yep and though the grandkids of those folks are now considered to be right wing mm. but we, we get caught up on some cultural differences here right so for instance a lot of the left wanted to align itself with the democratic party so they took up this whole made the anti-gun stance a big part of their thing and pitted them against you know folks in the south and you know what's seen as rednecks right mm -hmm. but in reality one that whole culture of gun you know the the gun club culture and stuff actually grows out of radical miners strikes yeah in which they were fighting pinkerton security yeah right and 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 a lot of places they declared they'll never get caught in that situation again in colorado rockefeller had all the miners on, that were standing in front of a mine mowed down by machine guns, yep. right? And so out of that culture, which, you know, the left should recognize as, you know, some sort of radical push, people were like, no, we're going to have our guns. Mm -hmm. On the other side, flip side of that coin, all the gun uh, laws only put people of color in jail anyway. Yep. yep. So, but the, but, 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 but like the center left has glommed on to that out of an out of a want want to uh, connect itself with the Democratic Party and created certain cultural codes yep. around this stuff that aren't necessarily left, you know, but we, we've created a, a, a difference in cultures. And, and part of that has to do with the, the left's move in the 60s to student movements as opposed to movements working around working class issues right, right. and so we've gotten taken certain uh cultural codes and translated them as as if they're supposed to be real political um really po political uh stances um so i would say this what occupy did was was break down a lot of that and and it didn't break it down for good, but it exposed that a lot of these ideas, a lot of the basic ideas about wealth distribution um, are ones that are agreed to by most people. Wow.
and yeah, boots. And, yeah. Um, like just talking about like the right to bear arms. I mean, I I agree with you in general, and I think um, I wanted to ask about the Panthers, uh, the Black Panthers, because of course that was uh, like the right to carry arms. The constitutional right was something that um, when black people were doing it in the inner cities and when they were trailing around after police cars was incredibly threatening and so um, that party was um, smashed um, and it seems to me that, you know, flowing on from that, well, there was um, you know, the war on drugs under Reagan and this new, like, criminalisation of um, like, of the inner city black neighbourhoods um, that changed the culture from the late 70s. And, you know, it seems that the civil rights movement, or like, uh, yeah, broadly speaking, was a real threat to the system. And one of the ways that they've coped with it, well, they coped with it in two ways. One, by getting like people like Obama and Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice up the ladder. The other by like mass incarceration. And we've got the same situation here in New Zealand where um, Māori are pretty much exactly the same in terms of... Mem- part of the population and prison population. Second so. highest per capita prison population. Second yeah. highest, yeah, yeah. And 15% of the population, 50% of the prison population. Um, and it seems that like there's a cultural thing that goes along with that too, like uh, in hip-hop. So going from like quite conscious, like uh, uh, quite political lyrics to like a glorification of gun violence and so on. And like it seemed to me always that that was sort of typified by Tupac Shakur, where his mother was part of that Black Panther generation, but his music is ambiguous at best. Um, what do you think of that whole thing? Well, I'd say this. Um, it comes down to a question. Well, I, the, 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 the relevant question in that whole discussion is first how what is culture how is culture created mm. now um, from everything that I've studied and um, what some left and right-wing anthropologists would say is that culture is what happens while people are trying to survive in other words fishing villages create fishing songs not the other way around right Culture isn't creating our reality. Our reality is creating culture. And to some extent, we create culture that uh, reinforces what we already have to do to survive, mm. right? So, I, I mean, because that's how, that's how we live, right? Um, we're going to create customs around the things that we have to do uh, in order to survive. And the, the, the truth is a lot of folks on the left and the right got got suckered into this idea of a culture of poverty that there are mistakes that poor people are making Mm -hmm. uh, whether it be in culture or morality or you know that or just in logic uh, that that there are mistakes that poor people are making that are causing them to be poor Paul Ryan did this last week. Bill O'Reilly does it all the time. Our Minister of Social Welfare does the culture and, and, of poverty, all that stuff. That are supposed to be on the left, a lot of these nonprofit organizations do it all the time. Mm-hmm. What is the Stop the Violence movement, for instance? 
stop the violence, even KRS-One, you know, stop the violence in, in all of its sort of forms that it comes out in the, in the U.S. Are these, not, are these nonprofit organizations filled with progressive folks who are saying, we got to stop this violence. So we got to teach people how to talk to each other better. We got to teach people how to not get so angry. Oh, we got to teach people how to, uh, uh, you know, how, how to calm down and, you know, get <laughs> their therapy. And the truth is this. The truth is that the, the violence is, is, a, is a necessary and logical outgrowth of this system and specifically all business requires violence to regulate itself legal business uses the police you can't walk into the into the grocery store and walk out with a cart full of groceries without paying because you're going to be met by the police now whether they beat you or not they're physically going to take you to jail mm. and that is a and there's a a physical or, or there at the very least if the cop happens to be your cousin or something like that they're gonna at the very least return those groceries mm. to the store there's business requires a physical element to it now illegal business mm. requires a physical element but you cannot go to the, the you can't go to court and say your honor we're supposed to get a uh, Half a key of cocaine, but we it was really mixed with 75% baking soda. I demand restitution. You can't, yeah, you can't go to the zoning commission and say, um, we, these permits are all wrong. There are only supposed to be three dope dealers on this block. You know, you can't do that. So that business regulates itself. Now, that business is a necessary outgrowth of the fact that there's unemployment. Because people are going to feed themselves no matter what. Mm. And the, f the fact that there is unemployment is due to the fact that capitalism must have unemployment in order to exist. Yep. Or, you know, if you have full employment under capitalism, then without even a real strike, yeah. then the workers can demand higher wages. Mm. They can't be threatened with replacement. Um, and you'll see Wall Street Journal and a lot of these other uh, economic publications worry when unemployment goes, the unemployment rate goes too low. Yeah. Um, and so the truth is, is that it has nothing. Violence in the streets has nothing to do with how well people can talk to each other. It has nothing to do with. Uh, "Quote unquote maleness, or you know any of that sort of stuff, and it has everything to do with the way the system is is organized. And if we want to stop violence, then we actually have are going to have to go back to what we were talking about earlier and create a radical mass militant labor movement. Mm. Uh, but." The point is, is that it's not just Paul Ryan putting out these uh, and re right wingers putting out this idea that that poverty is created from this this culture. Boots, I wanted to talk a little bit about how, you know, your sound, the sound of the coup uh, has it's, it's almost been 
It's almost like the equivalent, the musical equivalent, equivalent of like Trotsky's Permanent Revolution. Like you know, you guys seem to redefine yourselves. Uh, kind of with every album, always a kind of funky sound. I mean, you know, we are the ones. It's a classic. You know, where you uh, take an affected British accent. Uh, you know, now you've got a whole band uh, behind you. What is it like in your experimentation around music that maybe kind of embodies some kind of notion of, of praxis? Well, um, well, first I started out as an organizer, so um, I, I started doing music because I thought it would help the organizing. Um, but in reality, whatever little thing you decide to do, it often will end up taking up your whole life. And it was only in recent years that I decided, okay, I'm, I'm an artist. Um, and so um, I don't approach the music from the standpoint that um, I can do anything simply from getting across an idea to someone. At the, at the most, what I can do is get someone to get involved in an organization that actually is going to do something. Mm -hmm. um, I think that our first, early on, our music was very much fantasy. I talked about things as if there was this ongoing, this big movement, this big radical movement happening. And in reality, to, to, to most people, it didn't exist anywhere, mm -hmm. right? And, and some of that, you know, some of the, the, the worst compliments I've ever gotten were, were people telling me that they love my music, but they like to listen to that real shit. Meaning, like, right. that our early stuff talked about this movement that really wasn't there. But the movement that was there was that you could hustle and sell a rock for $10. And that was capitalism. And capitalism exists as a movement. Um, now I think that the movement is growing, especially in the last 10 years, to the point where people are seeing it. And I think that my music has changed uh, to, the, to the point where um, I'm talking about, I'm trying, uh, I, well, basically how I make my music in the first place is I, I, I take it from the subjective place. Uh, most of the songs are about things that I go through in a Daily, things that I go through on a daily basis or things that I'm thinking about or whatever and I just trust that a class analysis is so ingrained in how I think about the world that if I'm honest about writing songs that a class analysis is going to come into them and and hopefully through people relating to me personally you know we have songs about um, we have songs about riding in a broken car we have songs about uh, sex, we have songs about getting drunk, you know, songs about uh, about people that kiss up, kiss ass to the boss at work, any of those things, uh, um, or songs about breaking up. Those are, a lot of those songs are songs that the subject anybody could make, but I just kind of put my analysis in there and hope that it, that, that, that leads to people uh, joining a movement and and a lot of my stuff is opti is you know it, it has an optimistic viewpoint to it it's not angry or it's not doom and gloom because um 
I think that we can win. And I think that we can win because of my, because I have a class analysis. You know, I don't see all the problems in the world and I'm not confused and frustrated because of it. I might get frustrated sometimes about certain things, but um, a lot of times um, artists, some of them are my friends, they, they don't have a class analysis. They don't necessarily agree with it or whatever. Or they didn't come out of a movement. And so a lot of their music is kind of like a list of problems. Yeah. And, um, and therefore it's just a list of problems with no idea how we might be able to change things. And so it comes out as just anger yeah. or it comes out as frustration. And uh, I think that in a practical sense, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get across my optimism because I think that anger and frustration don't get people to join movements. Yeah. I think that, I think that people like to join a winning team or at least a team that has the ability to win. And, um, and so I put that, that out there. Um, and, and my music, it like, you know, as far as, theory and practice, it's, it's developed based on, you know, what I see as needed in the world. When we first came out, I just basically wanted to, to put these ideas out there for the record in some sort of mass way. Um, and then I started seeing what, what could actually be done with it. Mm. At the risk of hogging the microphone from Andrew, I wanted to jump in with one more quick question. I, th I mean, I kind of like the way you characterize a lot of, you know, uh, contemporary artists of yours, you know, uh, make music that embodies a certain anger or, you know, confusion's maybe the wrong kind of word. I mean, I think, I mean, I love what Killer Mike has been able to do in a kind of broad, uh, you know, mass appeal kind of sense and the message that he brings. And I guess, you know, this genre of like consciousness rap, I mean, you can't really define that by a certain sound, but just certain hip hop artists that, you know, speaking from a certain place, uh, certain class. And there's in, in a lot of conscious rap, uh, there seems to be kind of like this struggle to like, you know, save hip hop or to hate the corporate music industry. Um, and it seems that in your music, you're not really taking up like that's just almost like a small battle. I mean, the battle you're talking about is the broader I mean, kind of universal. Our first album came out on Wild Pitch EMI, mm. and um, you know because because I do think the whole system of capitalism needs to come down. I don't think it's my mission to make you know better in decapitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I you know I've been on indie labels and major labels, and they're all capitalists. Right. It, it's not I, I don't I, you know, before before there were official corporations. Capitalism was still terrible. <laughs> so, you know, you know who were indie capitalists? Slave owners. Shit. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it's not bad. You know, it's capitalism. Our, the, the main contradiction is not. Big capitalist versus little capitalist. The main contradiction is the exploitation of labor. Mm. And that is the thing that is going to change things qualitatively for human beings. And, uh, you know, that being changed. So, you know, I don't think 
you know, I'm not somebody that proposes that folks go live in a capitalist free enclave in the woods and make their own, grow their own wheat that they make clothes out of. You know, if you want to do that, fine, but I don't, that's not getting rid of capitalism and you're still part of capitalism. The fact that you're just subtracting yourself and not fighting it. And, uh, I don't think that, I don't think that, uh, you know, uh, while I think that there, that collectives are good because uh, they give us some space to work in, I don't think that examples in and of itself I don't think that like non-hierarchical examples in and of itself uh, like get folks to emulate them and then get rid of capitalism. I don't think that that happens. Not aiming high enough. Hey Boots, um, like one interesting thing about the era that we live in and too is globalization and um, in New Zealand we've been impacted like really you know heavily by that with you know loss, loss of a lot of industry here to um, you know, Southeast Asia, like in Europe, it's gone to Eastern Europe. Um, in the United States, you've got that movement to Mexico. Um, but then you've also got, like, the movement of people from Latin America up into uh, California, New Mexico, etc. What's that like? Is it, Are you getting, like, um, some of the radical politics from the South coming into the United States with that movement? Well, I mean... First of all, most of the people that come into the United States are in a desperate situation, right? I, you know, unless they're coming, you know, as an academic or something like that, they're they're uh, here to make money to send home or whatever. I'm I'm over generalizing, but so the folks that 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 bring the the uh, message in are, are, from other countries are often of a different class of people than than that. So it's not like because the borders are near each other, you know, that politic is getting through to California. It's not. There are, there are definitely folks that, for instance, there are definitely uh, large groups of uh, folks from uh, Mexico and Central America that uh, look to the Zapatistas as, you know, heroes, but that's not, you know, like I, I don't run into that. I think that where I hear about those movements are, from, are, are mainly from folks that are looking for those movements and other, looking for any example of someone fighting the system, right? Um, so, uh, and, and, you know, like maybe as opposed to European countries, uh, the U.S.'s borders are pretty sewed up. So, the, the you know, it's not like, you know, the political movement just like drapes over the border or anything like that from there. Uh, what I will say, though, is that um, everybody, feed, you know, the, as far as like organizers, everybody feeds off of each other. A lot of times when we're here doing stuff, uh, especially if you're working with um, anarchist groups, it'll be like, oh, this is what they, you know, this is uh, what they do in Oaxaca. This is what they do in Italy or whatever. Um, this is, you know, how they run a squat there or whatever. You know, we're thinking about things where we think people are doing it at a higher, much higher level than us. Right. And, um, and so 
you know, it's interesting because then I went to Italy and uh, right after Occupy and they were saying the same thing. Like, <laughs> you know, they were like saying, oh, this is how they do it in Oakland. <laughs> we look for, we, we hope somebody else is ahead of the game that can teach us. But one thing that I learned from Occupy that I didn't, that I it wasn't a way that I thought before is that there's there's so many new things that can happen. Uh, you know, I originally wasn't interested in the Occupy movement because it didn't look like the textbook version of what a radical mass movement or a revolutionary movement could be. Um, and I just thought that it wasn't going to work. I, and I got proven wrong. I got involved in it and saw it for what it was. Um, as far as the non-hierarchical thing that you were talking about before, I'm not exactly sure what, where it started. I know they're doing that in Syntagma Square, things like that. But as far you know, like uh, large groups of anarchists ran away from that that model while we were at, in Occupy Oakland and didn't like the General Assembly, right? Uh, and or think it was viable uh, as well. So I don't know if I could pin it just on anarchists. However, um, I will say that um, some think, some, a, a lot of anti-communist tenants kind of have uh, graduated. Huh? Well, a lot of our comrades have bought the liberal kind of anti-communism, the red baiting, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and so, and then it goes into, and, th and then it develops into modes of organizing that really are destructive, you know, like the, you can't tell me what to do, that's, yeah. you know, oppressive or what, like any, or no critique matters because, you know, like, uh, it's just so, sort of strange. And, and that's, that, that's only a, a, a few people that have, kind of bought into that. But I would say this, that the whole anti-hierarchical thing, the uh, and and the, the General Assembly, it was chaotic and it was hard to deal with mm. and it was the best thing to happen to a mass movement right. uh, because that is the reason why so many people that had never been involved in anything else came and stayed for a long time because it seemed so chaotic that they realized there were no professionals in charge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that there's no professional in the room saying what the correct language is, you know, what the correct way to do things are. And so many people came in and said, hey, I have just as much say as anyone else. And so they were more likely to be involved. And, and I've been involved in a lot of campaigns. And this is this is one that people felt was theirs. They didn't feel like they were coming to help this organization do something. They took it as theirs. And that caused a lot of problem because, you know, some of the folks that, you know, some of the folks that, that were there from Occupy Oakland's inception took some ownership themselves as if the new folks that came uh, didn't have as much say. Right. So that caused some, some problems. However, the reason that we were able to get so many people involved in the city that I've seen uh, people try to get people involved in is 
is because people saw it as theirs. They saw it that they they saw it as something they could get going. They right could on. they could be part of and and have a say in and and claim as their own. Right on. Hey, look, I don't want to take uh, too much of your time, Boos. You've been incredibly generous with that. And, you know, folks should know you've been incredibly generous to come grace us uh, in Dunedin, man. I, I wanted to I wanted to ask you, uh, well, first of all, you know, some of the skits on your albums with uh, with the character uh, Dawu are friggin' hilarious, man. Like, they're great hip-hop skit writing. Uh, and they tell me uh, that you're in the process of... of well, you've you've got a screenplay uh, that's had uh, David Cross and Patton Oswalt kind of jump on board. Uh, can can Michael Moore introduce you to the Weinstein's? Uh, you know what 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 can we expect? Well, uh, one of the, the 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 lead producer on it is this guy Ted Hope. He produced Twenty One Grams and The Ice. Right. Uh, he started off a lot of directors. He started off. Uh, Michelle Gondry, Ang Lee, um, and he's on board to make it happen. Dave Eggers, who wrote uh, this, who 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 heads up uh, McSweeney's publishing, um, he recently called and he wrote the the screenplay to Where the Wild Things Are and yep. Away We Go and a few other things. Uh, he said it's the best unproduced script he's ever read. So he's we're, we're, first we're putting it out in print form uh, on, in McSweeney's Quarterly, and that comes out in August. And in the and and in the fall, it'll go into production. Wow, fantastic! And, uh, and it's, a, it's a surreal dark comedy with magical realism and science fiction, inspired by my time as a telemarketer. <laughs> that, yeah, man. That's that's that's. Yeah. I, 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 it reminds me of Bukowski in the post office or something. That's just kind of what it evokes in my head there. But right. listen, but listen, hey, boots, just quickly, man. In terms of uh, April seventeenth, Chicks Hotel, Thursday night, Boots Riley acoustic set. You got your man uh, Grego coming with you. What what can um, the peeps of Dunedin expect, man? It's the most energy that you're gonna get out of an acoustic guitar and a voice. Awesome. There you go. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's it, it, what we you know we we put out our our uh, we, we try to with music. What we're trying to do is express the energy and the emotion and the ideas between the words. So, um, it's, it, it's, it's a good time. It's an acoustic set and it's, it's hip hop, it's punk, it's all of that. Like a lot of people, um, because we're so taught about what, what genre means and mm -hmm. sort of thing, they don't know what to expect when they, 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 or they do think they think they know what to expect, but they see something that they don't expect when they come to see either me do the acoustic set or to or to see the coup play. Right. So right, hey, listen, uh, speak for all of us at Radio One. We can't wait and and do it at a per on a personal level. You know, we thank you so much for coming to the extraordinary lengths to find us out here in Siberia. I mean, you know, Dunedin. So, um, shop man, thank you for for bringing us out there because. I've always wanted to come and just kind of thought it was some place we, we might not get to. 
So, uh, well, listen, Magic Clap is number one on the top 11 on Radio 1, and the awesome. new Cool AD track is number three, and the record store has got a third shipment of Sorry to Bother You LPs coming in. So, you know, picking up some fans in Dunedin, bro. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay, so that's cool. You promised me that there would be a barbecue as well. Oh well, the uh -huh. uh, oh shit. We'll be about let's we'll, we'll let's figure we'll yeah. figure it out. Well, we got yeah, we'll do a barbecue. Yeah, well, Mono Party be keen to host that. We gotta coordinate with Soundcheck. Maybe we gotta do a lunch barbecue. Can we do a lunch barbecue? Sure, yeah. Because we got we probably have like a, a five o'clock soundcheck or a six o'clock soundcheck. So all right, man, that that actually sounds. Yeah, soundcheck should be quick. It's just. Yeah, of course. Voice. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, no, because there's a party. There's a pre-party at the venue. Um, so we do want to get that. But listen, and I know the academics all want to take you out the night before. So they'll all do, right. like, the civilized. So thing. that means they drink, because that's what academics that's do. That's what they right? do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah well, drink and talk okay. about Gramsci, or at least not until <laughs> they're too drunk to, like, fall out. Yeah. All right. We'll definitely right. put this on air. But listen, uh, Reem, thanks Hayes for coming, bro. We're looking forward to it, eh? Okay. All the best, man. Thanks for having me. Peace. Take care, Peace. bro.